0: Welcome to Lo-Fi Lectionary! Hey everyone and welcome to Lo-Fi Lectionary, your Bible podcast for the religiously burned out and the spiritually curious. I am using my radio voice apparently. (laughs) Well, thanks for coming and showing up for one more episode. Beauty, talent, fame, money, refinement, top skill, and brain... But all the things you try to hide will be revealed on the other side. Let's. Uh, this is our regular episode for uh, Luke twelve. It's gonna be good. Um, honestly, this is one of those chapters of the book. Where when I started out doing the research and reading it, reading it, reading it, I, I wasn't a big fan. <laughs> um, so I'll just be honest, if if it strikes you that way too, that's okay. You can have uh parts of the story you like better than others. Some people like Return of the Jedi, some people don't, you know, it's just the way it is. But um the more I dig I dug into it, the the more I liked it. And I think there's some really interesting things in here. Um it is a big block of ethical teaching. Uh, so it's, yeah, it's just not the most exciting and not the most uh, story kind of narrative focused part of the book, but it's still good. So we're going to go ahead and dig into it. Before we jump into it, we are going to go ahead and talk about Luke 11 real quick. So uh, John Shavey did the, the long form Luke 11 episode for you guys a couple weeks ago. And um, there's a couple things from Luke 11 that I want to bring up real quick because they come into play in Luke 12. So for if if you're not super familiar with how the how the bible was written and built and then translated and then used over time it wasn't written with those chapter and verse numbers in it someone added those much later and what happens is is it's a helpful way for us to find a certain place in the bible pretty quickly but it doesn't always help if you think about each chapter always as a like a chapter narratively, like, oh, that section of the story ended. And now there's a new section of the story happening. Um, Luke 11 and 12 are really, really closely connected. In fact, I think they're all part of the same scene where Jesus is interacting with, with a group of folks and then teaching about what he just said. And then someone asks him a question about what he just said. And then he talks about that question that references what he just said, things like that. So, um, to bring up the connections that I think are most at play between Luke 11 and Luke 12. There's a couple of things. One in Luke 11, what happens in the story is Jesus is accused of casting out demons by the power and spirit of Beelzebul. Uh, Beelzebul is a, um, if you look back in the old Testament, it, 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 it takes two words. It takes Baal, um, is the, is the, it's a Beel part of the word. Uh, Baal was a, was a kind of like a, a, for lack of a better term, a rival God to Yahweh. In the Old Testament, it was a God that other cultures believed in, that the people of Israel were always strictly told, do not believe in and worship this God. This God's not really a real God. Um, so, um, uh, But as the history of the Old Testament and the theology of it is developed through the the remaining part of the Old Testament, but also in a lot of writings that we get between um the collections we have that we call the Old Testament and the New Testament in the Bible. Um, This character of Baal Beelzebul is kind of developed more and more over time, and there's more added to it, to eventually at a certain point, they just start using it as a term to um, talk about uh, the devil, which um, is the same kind of concept that Satan gets mixed up in. So by the time you get around to Jesus, when they use the word Beelzebul, it's kind of just... Um, another term for the same figure, um, that would be, uh, also could be called Satan or the devil or something like that. So, uh, Jesus is gets accused then of kind of being, uh, of casting out demons using the spirit of Beelzebub or, or the devil. Um, Jesus points out how that's kind of silly. If he was powered by the devil or Beelzebub, why would he be fighting against his own people? Because Beelzebul was a figure that was seen of as being as kind of the leader, the prince of demons in a sense. And so he's like, why would I be fighting against my own people? That's just silly. <laughs> um, so that's, so that's number one. So Jesus has been accused of being in league with or being empowered by being sent by the devil. So Um, he's in the story of Luke, at least he's, he's spoken of as being kind of sent by God. He's kind of God being born the son of God, but they're like, Oh, he's like the, the son of the follower of he's in league with the devil. Um, that's going to come into play big time in Luke 12. Second thing that happens in Luke 11, that's into play in Luke 12. Uh, Jesus really lays, starts laying into the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, um, towards the end of Luke 11. Um, and he gives them a couple very specific criticisms. One, he says that they are greedy and wicked, like they're full of greed and wickedness. And they, Jesus is accused of not properly following the religious order by washing his hands at a meal. And then Jesus turns and says, Oh, you want to criticize me? You are full of greed and wickedness. So Jesus, not the greatest house guest. You know, not like Sinbad. He's not a great house guest to have over, maybe, because um, because he might uh, kind of lay into you for a moment, especially if you if you if you try and lay into him or into his people. Um, he says that the Pharisees have neglected the love and justice of God, and it's kind of interesting that he says that those are the two words that he uses for their problem. They're neglecting both love and justice. Um, And those two things don't often normally go together, at least not in a religious sphere. Um, But he's saying, hey, like God has love and God has justice and he wants you to be a part of those and you've been neglecting it. Um, He criticizes them and the teachers of the law for loving the seats and the places of honor, you know, in the community. And when they walk around, they love how they get respect from people, but they're not taking on their job of actually serving and helping those people. They're loading the people with burdens, he says so they're they're supposed to ha- have if they if if they're an honored and respected person and if they're so good at their religion their job then Jesus expects is that they then help the people and be the greatest helpers and the greatest servants but instead they kind of love the honor and the respect and they've they've been susceptible to greed and wickedness in a way that they have turned the the religion where they're supposed to be a servant to others into one where they are served. And that's not good uh, for Jesus. So he lays into them pretty pretty heavily. So we're going to go ahead and jump right into Luke 12. We're not going to do a, a Luke in two minutes this week because it's going to be a long episode because um, we had kind of had to pick those back up and then carry on. So let's just go right into it. So here we go, Luke 12. Meanwhile, when the crowd gathered by the thousands so that they trampled on one another, Jesus began to speak first to his disciples. Beware of the yeast of the Pharisees, that is, their hypocrisy. Nothing is covered up that will not be uncovered, and nothing secret that will not become known. Therefore, whatever you have said into the darkness will be heard in the light, and what you have whispered behind closed doors will be proclaimed from the housetops. So here we go. We see that he's continuing his criticism of the Pharisees. He's now no longer speaking directly to them. He kind of makes a little turn and is talking right to his disciples, but talking to them in a way that it's overheard by this giant crowd. So it's very public. Um, and he says, And to beware of the yeast of the Pharisees, that is their hypocrisy. So the word used for hypocrisy here is hypocrisy. Um, which in in the, in the day and it's vernacular, uh, a hippocrisis was like a public performance. So he's saying, beware of the, of, of the Pharisees. They're just making a public performance, but it's not real. Like a public performance, like a, that's, that's a drama or a tragedy or a comedy, you know, it was, it was a theater term. Um, and Jesus is saying, that's what they're doing. They're doing theater wherever they're going. um, you know, they, they're, they're doing all these fancy sacrifices as he lines out in Luke 11, and they love to get the respect of the people, but they're neglecting love and justice. It's, it's, it's not real, Jesus says. Uh, you know, they're supposed to be leading and serving, but they aren't. In the last chapter, he even goes so far as to call them unmarked graves. So um, remember, you don't want corpse uncleanliness, so you stayed away from even graves, Um, so that way you didn't, uh, you know, get unclean ceremonially. And Jesus says, you guys are like unmarked graves. You're like, you're dead inside and you don't even know it. And when people come around you, you're, they are worse off for being around you. Cause if they bump into you, if they get too close, they will be made unclean. So you guys who are obsessed over cleanliness, you're actually making everyone around you unclean. Woo. That's, 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 those are tough words. Um, and so Jesus here compares it to like yeast in bread. Like, Hey, sooner or later, that bread's going to puff up that yeast. That little bacteria inside is going to breathe. If if watching all my episodes of Alton Brown, I I believe that's how it works. And, uh, and that bread dough is going to puff up. So you can very tell which bread has yeast in it and which bread doesn't. And Jesus says, yeah, nothing's going to be covered up. It's, it's, it's not going to be secret much longer. Um, that that this isn't real, that it's a public performance. And he's warning his disciples, don't be like that. So uh, don't make the same mistake. And particularly here, the mistake that they need to not make is they need to be the ones who care and serve for others if they're going to be leaders. If they've been given something good, they need to go care and serve for others. Let's continue on in the story. I tell you, my friends, do not fear those who kill the body. And after that can do nothing more. But I warn you whom to fear, fear him. After he has killed, who can cat, who has authority to cast into hell. And real quick here, I'm going to break in. I'm not going to use the word hell here. If you're English word translator, I'm going to use the word Gehenna. And I'm going to explain that later. So let's read that sentence again. But I warn you whom to fear. Fear him who, after he is killed, has authority to cast into Gehenna. Yes, I tell you, fear him. Are not five sparrows sold for two pennies? Yet not one of them is forgotten in God's sight but even the hairs of your head are all counted. Do not be afraid. You are of more value than many sparrows. So we get a little structure to Jesus as he continues. He, um, that's going to show up later in the chapter um, where Jesus is like, hey, don't be afraid. And, th- and that's going to be echoed all through this block of teaching. Don't be afraid. If you have anything to fear or to think about, don't worry about your opponents, but think about God. And then he follows that up every time with a reassurance of how loving and good God is. Um, so now let's dig into the nitty gritty. So this word Gehenna that often gets translated as hell. Um, Gehenna was an actual, physical, geographical place just outside of Jerusalem. Um, it's, it's, it's otherwise known as the Valley of Hinnom or Hinnom. Again, my Hebrew's not very good, but in the old Testament, um, this was a, a place, a particular valley next to a mountain. So there's a high place and a low place, um, where some people who were supposed to be good, faithful Israelites, good, faithful Yahweh worshipers went away and worshiped a different God called Molech. Um, and Molech was real bad because Molech worship often demanded the sacrifice of your children. And in the, in, in the Hebrew religion, there's stories that are foundational to their people. There's a, especially one called Abraham um, about a guy named Abraham who's who thinks that he's supposed to sacrifice his son. And then God steps in and says, no, do not do this. I will always provide you with something else. Do not sacrifice your children. That story is in there to be a lesson for them that they had never required to sacrifice your children. That's never something that pleases Yahweh. But other gods sometimes Ask for it, and Moloch. When they worshipped him, they would do that. So they would actually go to this valley just outside of their capital city, and they would worship Moloch sometimes by sacrificing human beings, their own children. Uh, there was a king in the Old Testament named Josiah who led like a like a reformation movement to kind of restore and bring the people back to Yahweh. Um, and what he does is he then. Uh, like cleanses and yet defiles the worship site of Molech so that way people wouldn't go worship there. Um and so uh, there are also some other traditions and stories that say that uh when other armies came in that the bodies of Jewish people that were conquered or 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 won over or um or 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 had conquest over were deposited in that valley as well. So there's all like this this collection of various stories that show that this place is like what became viewed as an accursed place because all these horrible things happened there. It was defiled ceremonially and people sacrificed children there and that it became like an ugly, nasty graveyard. So it was kind of seen as an accursed place. And then in literature, it became um, a, a place to name when you were using, when you needed a figurative accursed place in your conversation or argument or, or piece of poetry or writing. So Um, it was geographically a real place that by the time of Jesus was used as like a dump, like, um, people would go dump things there and then fires were kept burning there all the time because they wanted to burn the garbage to keep diseases away, to keep people from being ceremonial unclean by coming into contact with nasty, gross things that were dumped there, things like that. Um, so they would, so they would always like keep things on fire to keep, you know, bacteria and infections from being able to grow up. Um, And then by the time of Jesus, uh, rabbis would use uh, Gehenna, as a figurative place where that when they talked about, uh, what would happen to wicked people who were punished and often in their literature or in their talking, it was used as a place where non-Jewish people would go, um, to be punished after they died. But also in, in really harsh times, um, or in harsh criticisms and arguments, it would be used as a place where, oh my gosh, even you people who are supposed to be close to God could go there as a, as, as a, as a place of punishment or or refining. And that's what kind of makes it tricky is sometimes when they talk about Gehenna, it's a place where it's like, you will be there forever, um, burning, you know, in this garbage heap. And sometimes when it's used, um, it says it's a, it, people talk of it as being like a temporary site where you could go after death to, uh, spend some time of toning for your sins. So you'll experience some going to this awful, awful place for a while. um, as a way of you being purged, which is where the term purgatory comes from or refined or cleaned or purified. So that way you can go on to a much better place in the afterlife. And that's what makes it kind of tricky. And when we get this Christian tradition of hell, um, Sometimes in the Bible, when it's spoken of, it's spoken of as a place where it's going to be, oh, you'll go there and it'll be awful just for a while. And sometimes it's, no, you're going to be awful and you'll go there forever. Sometimes it's spoken of figuratively. And sometimes it's spoken of as being like a real place where people will go to after or before death. And it makes it kind of tricky. We're not going to go into all that right now, but I'm just saying the tradition in the Christian religion is much wider than we often think or is often presented to us regarding hell and stuff like that. So that's why I kind of like to use the term Gehenna um, instead of using the word hell because it kind of helps us remember that, oh, he's not talking about hell as some sort of very... Hell in the way that it's been thought out and argued about for 2000 years, he's talking about a physical place nearby. He's like, yeah, Gehenna, like we're going to walk to Jerusalem soon and we're, we might walk by or through Gehenna. You know what I mean? It's going to be a real place that you could go to and visit if you wanted to. Um, in the context of that, Jesus presents his disciples with, you know, he says, I tell you, my friends, don't fear, you know, your enemies who can kill the body. But if you want to fear anybody, um, if, if you're going to fear anything, fear God, because God could not only, um, after he has killed you, he could cast you into hell. Um, now you could stop reading there and go, Oh, I guess God is awful and scary because he's ready to kill me. And after he kills me, he could throw me into Gehenna. Um, that's awful. Oh my gosh, I need to be afraid of God. But that actually doesn't seem to be Jesus's point. He says, um, cause he immediately follows up with a reassurance that God is good. So it doesn't sound like God is interested in killing you all at all or possibly interested in throwing you into hell. So uh, he says, yes, I tell you, fear him. <gasps> are not five sparrows sold for two pence. There's like a little turn there. And yet not one of them is forgotten in God's sight. Even the hairs of your number are all counted, which is a very typical poetic way um, that even appears a couple places in the Old Testament and in other Jewish literature of of, of of describing how caring uh, that God is for people. And then he says, do not be afraid. You are of more value than many sparrows. So Jesus isn't saying here, I want my audience to walk away afraid of God because he twice in the same passage starts it off with do not fear and ends it with do not be afraid. So something to be interested in. Um, Let's continue on in the text. And I tell you, everyone who acknowledges me before others, the Son of Man, also will acknowledge before the angels of God. But whoever denies me before others will be denied before the angels of God. And everyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven. But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven. When they bring you before the synagogues, the rulers and the authorities, do not worry, about what, how you are to defend yourselves or what you are to say. For the Holy Spirit will teach you at that very hour what you ought to say. Okay, so Jesus is continuing his teaching. Um, he reiterates, do not worry again in this, in this passage. Um, and he's using a courtroom analogy, which is a very, very typical way to talk about um, ideas about the afterlife or about judgment before God at his time. So they often would use courtroom analogies and here it's of, um, someone's been brought before the angels and God, and some people will deny Jesus and some people won't deny Jesus. Um, some people will speak a word against the son of man. Um, and some people will blaspheme against the Holy spirit, you know, stuff like that. Um, but it's all in the context of like this courtroom. Um, and the angels are kind of there as witnesses, but God is kind of always the judge, um, and it seems to kind of present Jesus as kind of being um maybe an arbitrator, maybe an advocate, maybe like the lawyer kind of figure in the analogy and that that comes up in other places in in the gospels as well. Um but what's interesting is in this story the people who appear before this court are people who know Jesus like and they either have the choice to acknowledge him or not acknowledge him. This is not a word picture that describes like some sort of mode of judgment for everybody all around the world. It's, it's a very inside, inside baseball conversation, um, for the people who Jesus is kind of interacting with right now. So if you know, and have seen, and have witnessed Jesus, you will have, um, Jesus is saying like, yeah, you can either acknowledge me or you can deny me. Um, So this isn't like a a, a vision that gives us a theology of judgment over how God is going to possibly judge the entire world. According to Luke, this is a very inside conversation for a very specific group of people. So it's kind of interesting. Um, and, and later on, it's going to be, this, this is going to be made even clearer when it talks about the beatings later. (laughs) We're going to get to that in the story. Um, and judgment here is directly connected to knowing Jesus and being able to identify him, but then also deciding what to do about that. So that in the context of that, we get this phrase that has been much debated over years and years and years, and cause for fear and worry for many of us who uh, consider ourselves religious people, this idea that uh, people who speak words against the son of man will be forgiven but anyone who blasphemes against the holy spirit will not be forgiven <gasps> you know um when you read that as a kid as a little as a little good religious kid um i don't know about you but it freaked me out <laughs> um Cause I was like, Oh, I better not do whatever that means. You know what I mean? And, and I remember even talking with other kids and through my youth and stuff like that about, well, what does that mean? Cause we need to make sure that we don't do it. So we don't do something that God will decide to never forgive us about. Like as if God's hands would be tied. Oh, you, you, you broke the one magic rule that I just can't forgive you about, you know, even though I really want to, I just won't, you know, I can't like, those are the rules you guys or something like that. Um, But here we go. So blaspheming against the Holy Spirit, if you do it, you won't be forgiven. Blaspheming um, is, I think we've talked about this earlier on the podcast, but the way I try and describe it for folks is calling what is obviously good evil and calling what is obviously evil good. Um, And so therefore you're not paying proper reverence or worship or something like that to what is good and you're not properly keeping in order what is evil. And and so that is kind of blasphemy then. So when Jesus, uh, at other times in the stories, uses divine language for himself, people stand up and they say, hey, that's blasphemy. Like, who do you think you are? Because... He's he's supposed to be a you know in their eyes he's just a human being he's not God and so how dare how dare you talk about the the thing that is most good of God you know you can't identify yourself of God you're just a lowly human being that's blasphemy um, so kind of misidentifying God is a mode of blasphemy now in the last chapter we have had a group of people accuse Jesus as being not just bad or or, or, or wrong or miscorrect they're saying. He's casting out demons by the spirit of Beelzebul, the devil. And so they're misidentifying Jesus and calling. uh, I mean, from Jesus's point of view, it seems, and from Luke's point of view, like Jesus is obviously like showing the favor and goodness of God. But these people, because they're greedy and because they're wicked or because they love respect or whatever, are seeing him do good things. He's casting out demons and they're calling it evil. And so... In this context then, it seems like blasphemy against the Holy Spirit that can't be forgiven is calling the work of the Holy Spirit, like this work of God to save the world and help people and show goodness and favor, is looking at all that and calling it evil. So if you call the work of the Spirit, and if you call, and therefore you might say if, if you, in the, in the context of the story, people who are calling Jesus Jesus and his work evil, that's blasphemy. And that's a big problem. Um, Because in a sense, it's like Jesus is saying, hey, like, God is loving and good, and you don't need to be afraid of him. But we really can't help you if you think what is good is evil. Like, if you look at God, and the revelation of who God is, and how good God is, and stuff like that. And if you call that evil, like, I can't really help you. You know what I mean? Like, Like, I can't forgive that because you're not repentant. You know, you're not asking for forgiveness. You're, and it's like, if, if you don't want it, I can't give it to you. Does that make, I hope, I hope that kind of makes sense. So it's not like blasphemy against the Holy Spirit as if you accidentally said a curse word, or if you accidentally did something. It's like you living in the world, if you come to full knowledge of who God is and how good God is and stuff like that, and if you decide that you think that that is bad, that's blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. And that can't be forgiven. Like if you're brought to, you know, um, if you're brought before a heavenly court and you're, and you see God and you're like, nope, that's bad. That's evil. Then, you know, like that, that, that can't be something forgiven because it's like, you're not even saying you're sorry in the first place. Does that make sense? I hope so. Um, if, if, if a lot of you are still kind of unclear about that, maybe we can do like a special episode about it later. If it's something a lot of you are interested in. Um, So, but even in the mix of this context, Jesus is like, hey, don't worry about the, about people who are doing bad things and don't worry and don't be afraid. Um, because even if they, if people bring you before synagogues and rulers and authorities, don't worry because God is good. There's always a reassurance that God is good. So even after this very kind of scary language about blasphemy against the Holy Spirit, Jesus always immediately follows up with a reassurance of how good God is. The Holy Spirit will come and will teach you what to say, which is really interesting not only for Jesus' students because he's trying to reassure them and make them feel better and give them some courage and confidence, but it's also really interesting that Jesus is saying this in the context of like the people who would make themselves out to be his enemies. There are people who are calling him evil right now. And at least in the way that Jesus thinks the future is going to go, he's like, you, my followers, if you're doing what I'm doing, you're also going to be brought before these people who will want to hurt us and will want to throw you in jail or something like that. Don't worry. That's where you're supposed to be because that's a place where the Holy Spirit will show up. And tell you what to say. Jesus is here laying out a, a vision of the future where his enemies are so important to him that like his followers are going to go and the Holy Spirit is going to show up to continue to try to win these people over even as they're blaspheming and calling it evil. Isn't that interesting? So even in the mix of really harsh language um, about you know sins that might not be able to be forgiven, you know what I mean? the the crux of the story is still that Jesus wants these people to follow him as well and be part of his movement and to experience the love and goodness of God really interesting um so if you've if you are a religious person and you've always lived with some kind of low level or high level fear that you might blaspheme against the holy spirit I would say you probably don't need to be worried about it. Um I mean he does fall before that he says that all sins are going to be forgiven, which is really nice, you know, even if you speak them against Jesus himself. Um so if you're repenting and if you're identifying God as good, then you don't have to live like in some sort of fear that you're going to accidentally one day say something that's going to be unforgivable. The question I think that I would challenge you and me and those of us who do consider ourselves religious to ask ourselves is, is there anything in the world or inside of myself that might tempt me to start seeing things that are obviously good, but calling them evil or acting as if those things are evil or engaging those things as if they are evil. Cause that's a big, big problem. Um, and if you want to have a, an easy way out to avoid making a huge mistake and blaspheming the Holy spirit, Jesus has already told us what that is earlier. He says, don't judge. Cause if you don't make judgments about things, then you can help yourself, kind of humbly live in a way that you don't accidentally call what is good evil. But you're kind of more thoughtful and curious, and are willing to engage with things and stuff like that. Anyway, that, that those are Kevin's life hints. But let's let's uh, in the moment, let's just go ahead and continue on in the story. Someone in the crowd said to Jesus, "Teacher, tell my brother to divide the family inheritance with me." But Jesus said to him. "'Friend, who set me up to be a judge or arbitrator over you?' And then he said to them, "'Take care. Be on your guard against all kinds of greed.'" (laughs) That guy really shouldn't have asked that question. "'Be on your guard against all kinds of greed, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of possessions.'" And then he told them a parable. "'The land of a rich man produced abundantly, and the man thought to himself.'" what should I do? For I have no place to store my crops. Then he said, I will do this. I will pull down my barns and build larger ones. And then I will store all my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, you fool. This very night, your life is being demanded of you. And The things that you have prepared, whose will they be? So it is with those who store up treasures for themselves, but are not rich towards God. All right. So we get some really kind of heavy ethical teaching here. So a guy asks uh, what seems like a very simple question that you might ask a traveling teacher. Teacher, if he was recognized as an authority, you know, teacher, tell my tell my brother to divide the family inheritance with me. And then Jesus is like, hey, don't be greedy, <laughs> you know. Um, and even more about that, it's it's be on your guard against all kinds of greed. Um, so this is like Jesus saying, you need to be active to defend yourself against being susceptible to greed. Be on your guard against all kinds of greed. Greed is very sneaky according to Jesus. Um, And Jesus has already identified greed as a primary problem for the Pharisees and the teachers of the law. And now he's warning his disciples and the whole crowd, stay away from becoming a greedy person. It's going to get, make a big, big mess. And he tells this parable where there's a guy and he has, he, he you know, one year, he just produces so much food and he just keeps it all for himself. In fact, he pulls down his small barns to build bigger and bigger, huge barns. <laughs> oh, that's going to get me in trouble. So huge, huge, beautiful, great barns, right? <laughs> um, and just so he can sit and enjoy them all for himself. Eat, drink, marry, you know, relax, and this is bad because it would have been against the common like wisdom of the time to die with so much um possessions but not have a plan for who for where they're gonna go because that was seen as kind of squandering what you've been given, and so God shows up at the end of the parable and he's like, "You fool! This night you're going to die. You know your your life is being demanded of you, and the things that you've prepared, whose are they gonna be? Like you've lived such an isolated, greedy life that you don't even know who's gonna get your stuff next. Um, and you've and Jesus compares that to being not compares this guy not being generous towards others, towards other people with not being rich towards God. Like there's an, there's an equation there, like they're on equal levels. If you're not rich towards others, you are not rich towards God. So God and the way that we treat other people are very connected in Jesus's worldview in the book of Luke. Um, and so he talks about treasures. You can have treasure for yourself or being rich towards God. So you need to care for others. So again, it's kind of hammering home this theme that's been present all through the last few chapters. And in it, he, he, he references, he uses the word fool. When God shows up in the parable, he says, you fool. And Jesus in Luke 11 has called Pharisees the same name. He's like, you fools. Um, So Jesus is here comparing this character in the story with people like the Pharisees who have a lot, who have a position in the community and have power, possibly some wealth, some luxury, stuff like that, and aren't using it to take care of other people. And he has pretty harsh words about that. Let's continue on. Jesus said to his disciples, Therefore, I tell you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat, or about your body, what you will wear. For life is more than food, and the body more than clothing. Consider the ravens. They neither sow nor reap. They never have storehouse, no barn. And yet God feeds them. Of how much more value are you than the birds? And can any of you by worrying add a single hour to the span of your life? If then you are not able to do such a small thing as that, why do you worry about the rest? Consider the lilies, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not clothed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which is alive today and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, how much more will he clothe you, you of little faith? And do not keep striving for what you are to eat and what you are to drink, and do not keep worrying, for it is the nations of the world that strive after all these things, and your Father knows that you need them. Instead, strive for his kingdom, and these things will be given to you as well. Do not be afraid, little flock, for it is your father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Sell your possessions and give alms. Make purses for yourselves that do not wear out. An unfailing treasure in heaven, where no thief comes near and no moth destroys. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. So Jesus follows this uh, this segment of kind of judgment and ethical teaching and that, and that pretty harsh parable about the rich man with this long passage of reassurance for his audience. Um, I mean, if you look at the phrases that get repeated, do not worry, do not keep striving, do not keep worrying, do not be afraid. It's really therapeutic and encouraging is what he's trying to drive people towards. Um, And again, whenever he kind of gives people some kind of harsh judgment, he almost always follows it up with a reassurance that God is good and wants to care for them. I mean, so if you just look at the language in this part of the story, you know, like, God is the one who, like, feeds the birds by his hand, like the ravens and the sparrows. And God is the one who, uh, who clothes the grass of the field, you know. Um, It's, it's very intimate, kind of close images of God in, in regards to the, The things in the world, you know, these birds and grass. And Jesus says, if God is like that with birds and with grass, like, oh my gosh, how much more does God love and care about you? And so, therefore, you are free to not be afraid and to worry and to strive and stuff like that. So, the basis for all of his ethical teaching is first grounded in like just the love and goodness of God, which is really interesting. Um, so we get some, we get some, some, some commands in the negative, like don't be afraid, don't worry, don't keep striving. And then we finally get some positive ones. So these are kind of the heart of Jesus's ethical teaching at this point in the book of Luke. He says, sell your possessions and give alms and make purses for yourselves that don't wear out an unfailing treasure in heaven. So it's like, it's you know in the same way that says be on guard against greed like it's very active now he has some more active verbs like give things away be generous be charitable look for people that need it and share with them don't be like the guy in the story who just keeps everything for himself and in contrast also don't be like the Pharisees and these religious leaders who are so close to God and yet because they're greedy it's messing everything up for them and it's keeping them from helping other people. Jesus says to his disciples, you can't give that up. You need to go help other people. So sell and give and make for yourselves a new purse. Um, just like the guy um, in the story um, had treasure for himself, you know, here he says, build treasures instead in heaven where no thief comes near and no moth destroys. So, compared to the rich fool who didn't have plans for what would happen after he died and therefore everything he had was squandered and wasted, here it's like, you can, you wanna know how to make sure your stuff isn't wasted or squandered, give it away freely because that becomes treasure in heaven where no thief comes near and no moth destroys. Jesus kind of has a weird kind of wisdom where he says, it's not squandering to be charitable and to give away to needy people. That's, that's actually the best way and the most wise way to use your money instead of storing it up in a, in what seems like a safe place. Isn't that interesting? Um, and he calls that being rich towards God. So it's kind of interesting. Um, and in, uh, in the last chapter, in Luke 11, verse 41, he talks about how people should give alms. So here again, he's saying, you know, we need to give alms. Um, and the Pharisees don't give alms. Here, Jesus is saying, I want you, my followers, you will give alms. That's kind of like the the cure for greed, in a sense. Um, let's go ahead and continue on in the story. Be dressed for action and have your lamps lit. Be like those who are waiting for their master to return from the wedding banquet, so that they may open the door for him as soon as he comes and knocks. Blessed are those slaves whom the master finds alert when he comes. Truly, I tell you, he will fasten his belt and have them sit down to eat, and he will come and serve them. If he comes during the middle of the night or near dawn and finds them so, blessed are those slaves. But know this, if the owner of the house had known at what hour the thief was coming he would not have let his house be broken into. You must be ready for the son of man is coming at an unexpected hour. Real quick, this little parable, um, just to explain it, a master would never sit down and serve his slaves. But Jesus is saying like, that's the kind of, of, of a master that we hope that we have, you know, like, Like if you come and if you've been doing what he asks and you've been at work, which remember in this context, the work that Jesus is giving his disciples to do is to be charitable and help other people, stuff like that. Um, Then it's like God sees us as equals and he will fasten his belt and sit down and eat and he will serve them. So it's, it's kind of interesting. And like no master with a good reputation in the community would do that. But Jesus is here painting a picture of God that God doesn't care about his reputation. He wants to serve and be good to people. So that's kind of interesting. Um, continuing on in the story, because this next part is really connected. Peter said, Lord, are you telling this parable for us or for everyone? And Jesus said, Who then is the faithful and prudent manager whom his master will put in charge of his slaves to give them their allowance of food at the proper time? Blessed is that slave whom his master will find at work when he arrives. Truly, I tell you, he will put that one in charge of his possessions. But if that slave says to himself, my master is delayed in coming, if he begins to beat the other slaves, men and women, and to eat and drink and get drunk, The master of that slave will come on a day that he does not expect him, and at an hour that he does not know, and will cut him into pieces and put him with the unfaithful. That slave who knew what his master wanted, but did not prepare himself or do what was wanted, will receive a severe beating. But the one who did not know and did what was deserved did what deserved a beating will receive a light beating for everyone to whom much has been given much will be required and from the one whom much has been entrusted even more will be demanded so it's a very similar parable to the last one um you know it's like a master is away on a trip or something like that and you know he puts someone to be in charge of all the other people slave and servant is the same word in the greek um so you might see it translated either way um and uh and yeah um slavery in the ancient world could either be really 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 bad really really bad or could be okay um i mean i don't think anyone wants to be a slave but we have records historical records where if you were a, a slave/servant slash um who is in the house you could actually make a very good living and depending on your master like do rather well so some people even sold themselves into slavery if they knew that their master was going to be good to be a teacher of the children or to work in the house stuff like that um but i i'm, I'm not pretending that slavery is a good thing <laughs> um or that it, maybe it was it was probably the majority of cases that slaves were not treated well stuff like that and jesus here is using slavery as an image and that's very troubling for us um, especially in America with our history of slavery, let it be known here that Jesus is not advocating for slavery. In fact, he paints the picture of God as being, um, a, a master who sees himself as equal with the slaves and who wants to serve them. Um, but that doesn't really take away all the tension there. And if you have tension with it, that's okay. Um, I'm not going to try and, and, and explain it all away. Um, but uh at least not right now. <laughs> um, so it's 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 another image and the master goes away and he puts someone in charge. so they're given a position of power and responsibility where everything the master has can be theirs. And they abuse that privilege instead of taking care of everyone else in the household, they're eating and getting drunk and beating the slaves and mistreating them and stuff like that. And they're not taking care of things. The master comes back. They're furious because that was supposed to be their job. Um, he uses the phrase, cut them in pieces, which would have been a really graphic, gross, nasty, um, metaphor or phrase or imagery to use at the time. So Jesus really is going for shock value here. Um, And it's not typical. And it's not typical the way that Jesus talks elsewhere. So um, he's kind of intentionally using really heightened language. He's not like, and it's all figurative. He's not saying that, you know, people are going to be physically cut into pieces. Um, So don't go all Dante on us right now. Um, actually I really, I I think Dante is really interesting, but for other reasons, we'll talk about that some other time. That's a different podcast, but, um, you know, he'll be cut in, cut to pieces and put in with the unfaithful, the slave that knew what his master wanted, but didn't do what he was supposed to do will receive a severe beating. But the one who did not know what they were supposed to do, um, and was bad, will get a light beating. Um, so again, we get this idea that it's, it's a judgment imagery that Jesus is talking about. Um, but, there's different levels of judgment and harshness based on how, what position that people are in. So people who are in positions of power and authority, um, whether that's religious or political or economical in these stories, are supposed to take care of others and their punishment is worse if they don't do that. You know, If they abuse their power or are selfish or greedy with it, it's really bad for them. Whereas it says people who don't know what they were supposed to do and made some mistakes um, will, will will get off lighter, which is kind of interesting. Um, and then he wraps it up with this, this phrase, from everyone to whom much has been given, much will be required. From the one to whom much has been entrusted, m- even more will be demanded. And remember, this is in the, in the context of Jesus giving criticism to the religious leaders of his day. You know, They've been entrusted with much, and if they don't use it for the benefit of people, that's going to be really bad for them. And in contrast, turning to his disciples and saying, you guys are being given much. You're the ones who are closest to me. He continually puts them in positions of authority to go out and be his representatives, things like that. But so he's warning them, you are not one of my followers to be served yourself or to get really good things and to be greedy or selfish. Please, please, please don't make the same mistake the Pharisees make. Go and use your privilege, your position, your power, anything you've been given for the good of people who need it the most. Um, and he's, so again, every part of this chapter has been on that same theme. So I hate to sound like a broken record, but that's really what it's all about. Um, and I think that that has really important things for us to learn today about privilege. Um, but that's, again, another podcast. Um, let's go ahead and finish this chapter. "'I came to bring fire to the earth "'and how I wish it was already kindled. "'I have a baptism which which to be baptized, "'and what stress I am under until it is completed. "'Do you think that I have come to bring peace to the earth? "'No, I tell you, but rather division. "'From now on, five in one household will be divided, three against two, and two against three, "'they will be divided.' father against son, and son against father, and mother against daughter, and daughter against mother, and mother-in-law against her daughter-in-law, and daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. He said to the crowds, when you see a cloud arising in the west, you immediately say, it's gonna rain. And so it happens. And when you see the south wind blowing, you say, there will be scorching heat. And it happens. You hypocrites! You know how to interpret the appearance of earth and sky, but why do you not know how to interpret the present time? So um, Jesus talks about, I didn't come to bring peace. I came to bring division. Now elsewhere, it's, it's all about peace and favor and goodness and stuff like that. And here at this point, Jesus starts speaking against the power structure of the day and their greed and their selfishness and starts laying out that God is really not okay with that. And there's gonna be harsh consequences for people who abuse their power for selfish reasons. And only at this point does Jesus say, yeah, this teaching is going to cause division, even in families. People will be against each other, households will be divided. It's going to be like a, it's, it's, it's gonna be like dividing people in two. That's really interesting. I mean, when Jesus talks about love and goodness and stuff like that, he doesn't say, yeah, and love and goodness is going to divide things. It's only when Jesus starts challenging, like, the power structures of his day and starts challenging the elite of his day. It's just like, ooh, this is going to be bad. And you know what? I'm not going to mince words about it. I, they're, they're, I'm not going to bring this. This is a moment when I'm not here to bring peace. I need to bring division. It's like he has to tell the truth. It's not okay that people abuse other people. Um, and that's really interesting. And Jesus says, this is what's going to get you guys in trouble. This teaching is what's going to get you brought before the authorities and before the leaders and before the courts. You know what I mean? That's really interesting. Jesus doesn't seem to, in other places, talk about getting in trouble nearly as heavily as when he gives this teaching in this chapter. It's kind of interesting. Um, Uh, and then, yeah, there's, and then there's this imagery, you know, a cloud rising in the West that's coming in, uh, from the sea. So therefore it's bringing rain, you know, a South wind blowing in from the desert, from the South, you know, from South of the country says, Oh, it's going to be hot. You know, it's so easy for you guys to see what's happening and what's going to happen. Why don't you interpret the present time in the same way? Remember people have just called Jesus the devil. And so he's like, "Oh my gosh, you guys, I'm here. I'm ca- literally just casting demons out from people and you're calling it evil. Like, how can you do this? Like, that's that's nuts, dude." You <laughs> know? Um so so yeah, so pretty pretty harsh criticism over over pretty harsh criticisms that have been brought to him. Let's go ahead and finish this chapter with this one little bit. And why do you not judge for yourselves what is right? Thus, when you go to your accuser before a magistrate, On the way, make an effort to settle the case or you may be dragged before the judge and the judge will hand you over to the officer and the officer will throw you in prison. I tell you, you will never get out until you have paid the last penny. So Jesus, once again, here at the end, kind of wraps it up with a message of, it's an invitation to repentance. Um, So if you, hearing my teaching, you know, he's kind of saying, are realizing that you've made a mistake and that you're headed towards some bad consequences, or you feel like there's a little bit of judgment coming your way, do what's right, fix it now. Like, so he's this image of debtor's prison, um, where if you owed money to someone for, for long enough, they could just take you to court and the court would just put you in prison until someone paid your, um, debt. So your family or your friends or people outside of jail would have to collect together and work hard to pay off your debt. And if they couldn't, you just stayed in jail. Um, and this was a very common occurrence in Jesus's time. So jail was a way of really abusing the poor who just couldn't afford to live. Um, and Jesus uses that imagery here of saying, like, hey, if you realize you're in a tough spot, there's time to change now. Like, like, settle your case before you get to the court, because um, otherwise you're not going to get out until all of your debt has been paid, which is, again, kind of interesting, which if we take his imagery here along hand with the imagery that he has of Gehenna earlier, it seems like maybe that's not like he's saying at least Gehenna in this chapter is something that lasts for all eternity. Cause he's like, maybe there's just a debt to be paid. I don't know. It's tricky. It's a big, and it's a big ball of mess. So that's um, why we're not going to try and address it right here in the midst of this chapter. Plus I think this chapter's already been long. Oh my gosh, 51 minutes. Okay. Let's get to our lo-fi questions and I'm going to let you go. So <laughs> let me take a drink. So, tough chapter. Uh, you know, not, not the nicest Jesus that we get in this chapter, but he's, he's really at the same time, he's laying down this really heavy ethical teaching. He's trying to also give people a chance to fix it and give people one more chance to join his movement. And he's even saying that chance is going to keep going and going and going because even my followers will be brought before courts and they, through the Holy Spirit will be pleading for you to, to make the right choice. Um, so it's kind of interesting. So here we go. Lo-fi questions. What is God like in Luke 12? A um, couple things. One, um, Jesus is not impressed by the Pharisees and he's not, um, he doesn't fall for their religious performance. He sees through it. And if Luke is pre- presenting us with Jesus as being God, kind of incarnate God walking around um, and, you know, and being with us, um, and teaching and talking and stuff like that, then it's kind of just nice to just note that God is not someone who's who's impressed by religious performance and who won't be fooled by that, like God looks right on through to the heart of the people and he's like no you're you're doing this for the wrong reasons, you know you're doing it for yourself for your own respect, for your own pleasure, for your own greed, and he's he he can kind of see through it so that's kind of interesting that is a theme that goes all through the Bible of God just not being impressed. By uh fancy pants religious people in any way um, number two um God is so good that he invites people in the most desperate situations not to fear or worry. There's something about Jesus where he has this belief about God that God is so good and caring that God is the one who tenderly clothes even grass and flowers and feeds birds and makes sure that they get what they need that that's the god that looks over people and therefore he invites his followers to not be afraid and to not worry to not strive for things that's interesting now i mean we can all debate ourselves if we think that that's an accurate depiction of god but that's what jesus and luke is presenting us with this vision of god um and it's it's fair to say at this time that jesus is talking to a group of people who are in a very desperate situation Um, he's talking to a crowd of people who have not been helped by their, um, by their political leaders, by their religious leaders, people like that, who are in desperate need, Who everywhere they go, like need healing or food or money or, um, you know, stuff like that. Um, and, and Jesus has, has dares enough to talk to those people and tell them not to be afraid and not to worry. And that's kind of, there's something kind of comforting about that, but that's also very challenging as well. Um, but based in it all is this idea that God is very good. Um, and that God has counted the hairs on their head and considers all of those people, poor people who maybe don't believe much about themselves, that they are of more value to God than sparrows or ravens or flowers or anything else. Um, and maybe people need to be reminded of that. And God is just like, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm that good. So it's kind of interesting. Number three, God, um, goes after his enemies not to vanquish them, not to kill them, not to defeat them, but to win them over. Again, he he himself is testifying before them and will go and be brought before authorities, he's already predicted, um, to win them over, to have a chance to do that. And he's saying, my followers will as well. Um, Even the people who oppose Jesus Jesus has some harsh words for, but he's doing it to try to correct them, to win them over, which is really interesting. God is really someone who seems to love his enemies. That's kind of interesting in Luke 12, at least. Um, But number four, God is a God in Luke 12 who gets upset when people don't care for other people, like selfishness and greed makes God upset. Um, especially if people have power and resources and wealth and aren't using it to take care of others, that makes God upset. He's not okay with it. That's, that's who God is in Luke 12. Interesting. Uh, lo-fi question number two. What are people like in Luke 12? Um, well... Um, If we look at the examples of uh, the the people Jesus is criticizing here, people can be hypocrites. Like often they try and put on a public performance to seem a certain way, to win respect, or because they're greedy and want something from people. Um, And that's just what people are like sometimes. Some people in the story are like that. Um, And sometimes, at least in Luke 12, people... um, Are given good things, you know, their position, their religion, their resources, their crops in the parable. And it actually becomes their downfall because, in being given to it, like there's something required of them. They're supposed to care for other people. And then they have to choose to care for them or not to. Jesus seems to think that people can go either way that people can be good and actually help out and care for other people, or people can choose to be selfish and keep it all for themselves. And sometimes people do one, and sometimes people do the other. Um, Luke leaves that as, as an option for people to choose in Luke 12. Um, people are prone towards worry, or possibly prone towards seeing themselves as worthless. So Jesus in Luke 12 has this chorus that gets repeated over and over and over again of "Do not be afraid." Do not worry, you are worth so much, you are incredibly important. God will clothe you and take care of you and make sure you get what you need, things like that. Um, but Jesus has to keep repeating that over and over again. It's not like it's not something that Jesus can just drop and be like, Hey, don't worry, God loves you, and then now let's talk about a whole bunch of other stuff. Jesus keeps coming back to it, and so uh, Luke is presenting us with this crowd you know, the people that Jesus is speaking to who maybe don't believe that about themselves who maybe look around at the world and are like, no, the evidence is clear that we are not important to God. (laughs) Um, And here Luke is presenting us with a vision of God that thinks that those people are in fact, incredibly important. Um, And so God is inviting them to come out of fear and worry and like a self hatred kind of to come and to see themselves as people who are beloved and who are loved, and who are cared for, which is really interesting. Um, and then last, um, what are people like? People are invited to cooperate with God in the work of caring for and saving the world. So um, Jesus in the parable at the end says that, that it's, it's, like there's, it's like God puts people in charge of caring for other people. And that seems to be what Jesus has done with his disciples, this movement he's starting that he invites everyone to join. Like, you can come along with me, but part of our job is is to care for people who need care and to help each other out. Um, And that leaves us with a story that teaches this idea that we are actually able to cooperate in the caring for other people. And maybe even more that not just we're invited to it, but God has like an expectation of that. That's the way the world is supposed to be. Um, And people are invited to cooperate and partner with God. It's not like people just leave it all up to God to care for people like Jesus in his teaching is like, no, this is an expectation and a responsibility for everybody, which is kind of interesting. So why this story? Why would people remember this story? Why would people tell this story a bunch of times? Why would someone tell it to Luke? Why would Luke that this story was worth putting in the Bible? Why would people then read the book of Luke and think that the book of Luke as a whole is important because it contains the story? and tell it, and read it, and study it for the last thousands of years, a couple things, a couple ideas that I have. Here are a couple ideas of why they might have thought that this story was important. So one, this story has Jesus teaching, and it's framed in a way as to kind of reveal that there, this might be like the heart of the ethics of their religion. So in the story, Jesus is laying out, he's saying there's all these other movements that are really, really close. They, they're some of their, most of their theological beliefs are great. You know, the Pharisees is teacher of a lot Jesus actually agrees with them on a lot of things, but he's pointing out they've missed one really big thing and that's caused a lot of problems. And so the story might be included because these people really believed that we if we're going to be part of this movement that Jesus has started, we need to make sure that we don't make the same mistake. We want to succeed in this area where the other groups made a mistake. So whereas the Pharisees and the teachers of the law were like susceptible to a kind of greed that drove them to use their religion to hurt other people, to abuse other people, to as as maybe excuses to not take care of other people. Luke is writing this story cause, because it's, telling the message of, hey, if you're going to follow this way, don't make the same mistake. Instead, sell your things, give things away, make purses for yourself, like be active in being charitable and good. And along the way, be on your guard that you are not don't give in to the same kind of greed that the Pharisees and teachers lauded, the same kind of greed that might actually drive you to blaspheme against the Holy Spirit, to, to call evil good. Does that make sense? And if, I mean, if they heard the story, they were like, oh my gosh, Jesus has really harsh words here. That means that the story is kind of important because we want to be close to God in this way. And we need to, a story that will help us remember not to be greedy and how we can do all the religious stuff, right. But if we forget this, it becomes a huge, huge problem. So they kind of, told the story a lot. Luke decided to write it down. And then people have been telling it to each other for a long time as a way of saying, let's not miss the heart of of this religion, um, which is all about taking care of other people and not being greedy. um, So that maybe we can succeed where other movements that have been close um, have failed and have ended up kind of in their failure, ended up kind of been going against what's good in the world. Um, So, yeah, Um, you, I mean, you also have to remember that the people of the time were under persecution the time that Luke is writing this. So um, either by Jewish communities or by Greek communities or whatever, um, I mean, people probably were actively being brought before courts and authorities um, and brought up on charges and all kinds of stuff. So they would be terrified um, about how to handle that. And this story becomes a way of reminding them or of teaching them a lesson that says don't be worried don't be afraid in fact the holy spirit in the same way that it was with jesus is going to be with you to talk and say the right thing and actually this is an opportunity for god to reach his enemies to love them i mean early on in the in, in the movement of and the, the development of the early christian church you have the church actually being something like a training school for martyrs because they were under such heavy persecution that a lot of them were being killed just for being part of this Jesus movement. Um, And so they would be looking to their own stories, their own tradition as a way of trying to figure out how do we handle this? How do we respond to this kind of persecution? Like they're probably going to kill me. And this story is kind of like a guide to them saying, yes, we know that this is going to happen. It's not unexpected. It doesn't mean that God doesn't care about you. In fact, it's a way that we can work with God to win over people to what is right and good in the world, which is really interesting that they would continue to tell this story for a long time. And then maybe that's why Luke thought it was important enough to write down in his book because he wanted people to hear and to be encouraged and to um, not believe that God was leaving them alone in the midst of horrible suffering. Um, Interesting. Um, So, Bill, added to that, um, why this story? Well, it's a story in which Jesus continually asks people to remember that God is loving and good. And what if... People need to be reminded of that often. I mean, the people in the story, as Jesus reminds them over and over and over again, consider the ravens, consider the sparrows, look at the lilies. God loves all those things. He must love you way, way, way more. If God cares about grass, then he has to care about you deeply. Maybe they keep telling the story because maybe the people reading it and telling it saw themselves in the crowd as being people who need to be reminded in the face of all kinds of evidence that might show that there is no God or that God doesn't care about us, that God isn't loving or that the world is awful, that no, we have a story that teaches us that God is good and that even in the midst of great pain, God cares for us and we are important to God and the hairs on our head are numbered if they believed that that story was true, I can imagine that they would want to hear it often. And if you heard this story often, and if that's the point of view of God that you had, I think it would have a really dramatic effect on how you live in the world and on how you treat others and stuff like that. I mean, this is a crucial need for people who are under like apocalyptic duress, who have just witnessed the the crumbling of their country, who have witnessed the the slaying of their people, you know, um, and who continue to be under um, the threat of suffering and death from, a, from an empire that's going against them, you know what I mean? They would maybe find the story as being like, no, I remember that Jesus said to consider the birds and the grass and that God cares about me, even when it doesn't feel or look like that way in the world, or even when other people don't care about me that way, I can take some comfort in knowing that God does. That's kind of interesting. And that would also drive them to not only remember that for themselves, but to remember that for other people as well, because the ethical teaching at the end is God loves you so much. If you have anything, please go share it, give it, take care of each other. And so this story becomes a way for them to remember what their job in the world is to care for others. Um, And maybe that has to begin with them having a firm understanding of that they are loved because maybe you can't really love and be generous with others unless you believe that the world is or can be a loving and generous place. And if you're a religious person, maybe you can't really love and be generous with others unless you first believe that God has been loving and generous with you. Maybe that's the way it works. And so maybe that's why they wanted to keep the story around, because it teaches those things. And then it would continue, the story would continue to be a um, a reminder to them that they need to be on guard against the temptations that power and greed will bring. And these those two temptations, power and greed, will haunt the church and haunt people that claim Jesus Forever, for, for all of their history, um, whether they're oppressed or they are the oppressor, whether they're under the threat of the empire or they maybe become the empire themselves, whether they're the poor people that need the bread, the daily bread, or they're the people who have so much bread that they don't even know what to do with. I mean, this story, like those temptations will haunt people wherever they go. And the story becomes a way of them being like, nope, this is exactly what we should do. We need to give and sell and give away. And that's what Jesus wants us to do. Um, And let's not be thrown off course. I mean, other sins... Um, the, the church can often find itself becoming obsessed over other sins, but if they keep this story around and keep telling it to each other, it can become a way for them to remember that no sin, according to Jesus, can throw us off course of doing what God wants us to do in the world. Like the, like, like the sin or the temptation to use power or wealth or resources for ourselves or to hurt people. Like nothing is like power and greed. I mean, I mean, I mean, the church traditionally an easy one to pick out is like that we can become obsessed with sex, you know? Um, But in the words of the great philosopher Tim Curry, sex is only a red herring, you know, the deeper, possibly more corrupting sin and temptation in in Luke 12, at least, is the one about power and greed because they seem to do the most damage because no other sin, according to Jesus can actually lead people to look at something that is obviously good and call it evil. That'll blind them from seeing the sign of the times. I would venture to guess that that's a good lesson for us to think about today, <laughs> whether we're religious or not. But anyway, um, that's the end of Luke 12. It was a long episode if you listened to it all the way through. Oh, you brave people. Um, it was fun. It was good. It's heavy. But it's so, so important, I think. I hope you got a lot out of it. I hope you see how the story is developing. Um, This becomes a good moment where the plot kind of thickens and the conflict and tension continues to build that's leading up to the big climax towards the end of the book. So uh, we made it through. Uh, We'll have a kitchen episode coming up later this week, and then we'll get into Luke 13 next week. Thanks, you guys. Have a great day. Hi, everyone. I just want to say a quick thank you to you for listening to this episode of Lo-Fi Lectionary. If you liked the podcast, please help us out. You can review, subscribe, and share the podcast any way you can. Um, The more people we get in on the game, the funner this is going to be. If you want to participate in the discussion for this episode, you can come visit our website at kevinlester.net and follow the links to the podcast and then to the link for this episode. Um, you can also find our podcast on Facebook, and we can discuss and, and keep things going on there. Uh, just search Facebook for Lo-Fi Electionary, and you'll find us. You can also get in touch with me, Kevin, directly at lofi at kevinlester.net, and that's lofi with no dash, so L-O-F-I at kevinlester.net. And you can also find me on Twitter at lo-fi kevin with no dash again, so at lo-fi kevin. Um That's kind of it, so thank you for coming, and we'll see you guys next episode. Thank you for listening.